listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hi, I'm Sonal Rupani in for Georgia on the agenda. And LinkedIn has announced a number of expected trends for 2024. We took a deeper look at a few of those. One of those was unretirement, the idea that people are going to continue to work as long as they're physically able and even some people coming out of retirement altogether. Why is that happening? We have some experts in the studio to discuss Plus, conscious buying seems to be on the rise. Consumers are looking for companies that align with their own values and morals. Is this something that you practice? We find out a little bit more on the subject. And salaries are expected to go up largely in the UAE in 2024. How can you negotiate for a better salary? We had expert Carol Glenn in with us to give us her tips and tricks. Now we have a full house. I absolutely love it when it's busy in this studio because we're talking about another phenomenon that's made it into LinkedIn's annual list of big ideas. They're the trends that are predicted by experts for 2024. And this one is called the unretirement. That's because research shows the majority of baby boomers are expected to work until they physically can't. Over in the U.S., one in five retired Americans plans to go back to work. So retired and actually coming out of that retirement. That's according to a survey by Paychex, which is a payroll solutions firm. And for most, money is actually the predominant reason. That surprised me a little bit. I thought it might be other reasons related to kind of having a purpose and some of the other things that we get out of work aside from money. So there are a number of factors involved in that. So to join us to talk a little bit more about that, we've got David McKenzie, Managing Director of McKenzie Jones Middle East and also re- recruitment expert joining us in the studio. Good morning, David. Good morning. Always lovely to have you in. And we've also got media trainer and communication expert Etna Trainer in the studio. And in fact, She's got a little bit of a walk-in song for this. Love that, Etna. And the reason that you're joining us today is because you are still actively working. You have been, you haven't let up. You are over the age of 60. And we just wanted to get your voice as well about your own experience. So if you do have questions on this topic, you want to share your story, you can always get in touch on 4001. You can also WhatsApp us on 04871 Thank you for joining us, Etna. It's great to be here. And, uh, you know, I, I do love that song. It's sort of a bit of my theme song, isn't it? It's... Uh, and I liked it when I was younger, so it's a, uh, it's perfect for this. Thank you for throwing that one in there. Yeah, of course. And I, I think we should all, all our guests should have. I a think I need one. We need one for you. Before the end of the show, we're going to exactly. get you a song. <laughs> we'll, we'll, yeah. give you, we'll give you an exit song somehow. <laughs> an exit song. <laughs> we'll figure that one out. Um, but David, let's start mm. because I mentioned a couple of stats based from the U.S. We don't necessarily have figures specifically here in the UAE. But are you seeing this as a trend? Are you seeing people who simply don't want to retire over here in the UAE want to keep working or even people that have retired and are coming out of that retirement? Well, I'm one. I'm not going to retire. Mm. And, you know, I quite like working. But I think there's three reasons we see this in recruitment there. And we're seeing it more and more now as, as people are they retire they go home, get bored, want to do something different. And actually, we're finding more people are going back to it because they want to do something they're passionate about, but they're right. not driven by career, by money, 
or they're not motivated by, you know, climbing the career ladder. So they want to do something they're really good at. But I think there's lots of things. People are, you know, having kids later. So they're having to work for financial reasons. Because you think about certainly in Europe and stuff, you, if you go into these big, big box sheds, you know, the DIY stores, all of the people serving you typically are over 60. Because right. they go back, A, because they want to do something, but secondly, they need, a, they need an income as well. We're not really seeing it here at the moment. Now, the retirement age, I think, is 60 and you can work till 65. But I think I saw a stat recently that, that by 2030, there's going to be 25,000 retirees, expats in Dubai, not in the UAE, just in Dubai. So I assume some of those will work. Now, excuse my ignorance on this manner, but I know it's been changing a little bit when it comes to retiring here in the mm. UAE, partly because of visa changes that have come into effect. But do people have to retire when they're 65? Can they continue to work? Are you seeing at, at the as moment, people no. are choosing to live here? No, you can't. Okay. What, 65 comes, your visa technically runs out. Now, I don't know with the golden visa whether you mm. can continue doing that, but certainly when we're recruiting, the, the problem we have at the moment, and I don't think the UAE's really clued into this yet, is that... There are so many people who've got so much experience, and there's one sitting right next door to me, um, who want to work, who've got really good experience, and companies are not looking at that and using that as an untapped resource. Yeah. And Edna, David's told us he's not going to retire. You feel the same. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm certainly not going to retire. I mean, I clearly haven't retired. Yeah. And I've no intention of it. I've actually had my absolute best year ever. It's been nonstop and, uh, you know, people are sort of giving me a hard time about when am I ever in Dubai, you know, and I'm going, OK, I'm here for two weeks. I'm taking yeah. bookings right now. But um, again, I think here in the corporate world, yes, there's a retirement age and that's there just because it's been expected. But when you look at people who then set up their own business, just what David is saying, you know, maybe getting that second career, then the opportunities here in this region are endless. If you have your own business here, if you have your own property, and we're beginning to see a lot of people who are coming here who are almost doing second careers. And I think being, you know, independent, self-employed, running your own business, being a consultant, which we see in all aspects, in all sectors, you know, that is the big focus here now. And I think it's it's hugely popular. And they're encouraging people to come here to, yes, retire, but also, I think, to, you know, set up their own business. And then it, it's endless. You can work for as long as you want, basically. Right. And tell us a little bit about your own journey, because part of what David was saying is that people want to follow their passions. And I think as careers are getting longer, we're seeing people doing more and more diverse things. So you started off as a TV reporter. You're an MC. You're a moderator. You're a media coach now. I mean, how have you managed to traverse um, so many different areas? I spent my career as a journalist and I'd worked, you know, I'm sort of luckily to have almost the golden CV. I worked at Sky News, Bloomberg, ABC News, uh, you know, BBC, uh, CNBC. So it's, you know, it's been very, very good to me in that sense. And when I finished, I wanted to do something else. And a lot of people used to ask me if I did media training. And it was something that I started doing. But also being a journalist, you get the opportunity to moderate and to do MC at a lot of big events. And then that became very much a, a career step. I think when companies and the big companies realized they wanted professional moderators, not just industry specialists. Mm. And it's good to have industry specialists, but they're often selling something as well. You know, so the concept of an independent moderator. And I've done incredible work here over the last few years. Uh, the DMG group has probably been my my big favorite. I do Adipec, I do Gastech, I do a lot of their work. So I'm a big fan of them and I continue to do that. I've done that, I think, for over 15 years. And I'm doing the international circuit, which is great. I'm also a bit of a specialist in the energy circuit. Mm -hmm. So that has hugely helped me. But also put me in a position whereby, why would I retire now? I know so much about the energy industry. We're in the middle of this huge energy transition. It's the most exciting thing that's happened since, 
you know, the Industrial Revolution. And to be in the middle of that and be able to add value, it's really, it's, it's a real honor and it's real exciting. I wouldn't walk away from it right now. No way. I have a, maybe a little bit of a sensitive question for both of you. David, I'm going to start with you. <laughs> no. Do you? <laughs> we don't get sensitive. The older we no. get, the less sensitive we get. Do you see ageism here? Is yes. there age discrimination? Is there a big issue? And how does it present? I think in, in my, my industry, yes, it does. You know, I'll often get asked the question, I don't want somebody over 50. And it's quite weird talking to someone like me who's over 50. And so I try and say, well, well why? And, and you have to push back on it. I think there is still a, in the corporate world, there's still the thought process that you want a young, driven, dynamic individual. But I think there's, there's still a war for talent in the Middle East. You know, we are, we've got lots of people here, but a lot of them don't fit the roles we're looking for. And I keep saying to clients, why don't you consider somebody that's a bit older, who's got loads of experience, will just do the job you want them to do. They don't want to be the CEO. They just want to do a learning and development job or something. I, I placed a lady who's 61 uh, about a year ago, and she was a chief HR officer for a very big multinational in the States. Really powerful, mm. very amazing woman. She said, I don't want to do a high-powered job. And she's now an HR manager at a media company with 30 people. And she loves it. And the MD said to me, she's the best hire I've ever made. Really? It's wow. great. And, and you were reacting a little bit to that. Do you experience this? Do you Have you experienced Oh, I, I get it all the time. I get a lot of people who call me up looking for a moderator. And the first thing I'll say, is it English or Arabic? Because clearly, unfortunately, even though I've been here a while, I can't do the Arabic bit. And, um, you know, they'll, they'll say English. I'm going, oh, I can do it. And they go, we're looking for someone younger. And I'm going, oh, <laughs> They'll okay. actually say okay. that to you. They, they say Ooh. that. No, but it's usually at an awards event or okay. something like that. And I'm going, so you really want somebody younger, no real um, interest or knowledge in the industry, but somebody who's going to just sort of look glam and you'll do all the work. You'll write up everything. They're going, yeah, we'll write everything for them. They just have to show up. And, and then, you know, the good mm. side for me is then they say, no, no, we'd rather hold you for some, you know, serious substantial stuff and, you know, the, the media stuff. And I'm going, well, OK, I can I can handle that. You yeah. know, and I, I really don't want to be I, I'm, I'm not necessarily uh, the one to be doing the awards. I'd much right. rather be on the the media interview well, section. Suits but, your but expertise, yeah, it I suppose, it's hilarious. Now I, now I just say, right, well, I've got a whole lineup of them. You know, I can help you out here. No problem. <laughs> what it the is, hell? It is interesting how direct people are here about it. I think in other parts of the world, you might experience it, but people perhaps just doing it quietly, maybe under auspices. But here, the fact that people will just say it to your face, I want somebody young. I want somebody younger for this. It's just a really interesting dynamic. We're going to continue this conversation on unretirement. Will you retire? Let us know. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. You are tuned into The Agenda. We've got two guests in our studio, and only one of them got some walk-in music when they came in today. So, David, we got to give you this. I used to worry. Thought I was going mad in a hurry. Getting stressed, making excess mess in darkness. No Little theme song there for David McKenzie. He's managing director of McKenzie Jones Middle East and recruitment expert. And he's joining us in studio alongside Etna Trainer, who is a media trainer and communi communications expert as well. And she has vowed never to retire. So the reason we have both of you in is because we've been talking about unretirement, a trend that we're expecting to see as more and more people say that they're planning to work until they're physically not able to anymore. A lot of people also who have retired coming out of that. Now, part of the motivation for that 
is money. And, and you know, that's something actually we're going to be discussing in the next hour when it comes to, um, you know, financial planning and savings and, and different generational wealth, of course. But part of that is other reasons as well. A lot of people, especially here in the region, motivated by passion. And something that we were discussing off air is also the fact that people seem to be more focused on health and longevity. Mm. Um, you know, we've seen a big trend, a lot of biohackers, a lot of people focusing on their fitness more and more. And Edna, let me put this one to you. I mean, as you think about this, as you focus on your own health and longevity, does, does work and being active and having a purpose with your work an important role of that? Absolutely. I think when we look at health, it's so important um, when we look at a longer career. And, you know, longevity in the industry in terms of staying healthy is number one. If you're going to be able to work till, you know, your 80s beyond, you need to be healthy to do this. And I think that's the absolute number one thing. And we look here at the trends in the UAE. We look at the health trends here. We have, um, you know, a lot of big events and races and focus on health and staying healthier. And then even looking at companies like M42 in Abu Dhabi, uh, I really love the work that they do. And they all talk about people, not patients. And really getting that mindset in place, gathering the data in terms of analytics. We look at the UAE Genomic Project, all of that looking at predictability in terms of how long people will live and be being able to actually prevent diseases. Ultimately, that's what's happening. If we can prevent a lot of illnesses that we get along the way, we will naturally live healthier and happier lives. And I think that's the huge focus now that's happening right around the world. And people taking control of their, um, their diet, being aware of what they eat, uh, knowing their medicines, all of that. I think, you know, Google has helped us a lot. Dr. Google is not ideal, but uh, it's maybe a good reference every now and then to get a little bit of an idea of what's going on and then to move it forward. But I think that control, that self-control that people can actually take and um, being able to, to run a healthier, better life. Because if we're not healthy, the worst thing you want is to actually live a long and unhealthy life. That's not going to help anybody. Yeah. So you really want it to be, you know, a long life and a healthy life. That's essential. And David, something that we were talking about just previously was age discrimination, how sometimes blatant it is here in the region. People aren't necessarily trying to hide it. They're pretty direct about the fact that they want somebody of a, under a certain age, I think it's fair to say. As people are looking to work for longer, what advice do you have for people who are slightly more mature in the job market and perhaps find it a little bit harder to jump from job to job, depending on what, what role they're in? What's, what's a way that they can kind of, uh, I suppose, manage around that age discrimination here? I think the, the, there is, and fortunately we see it a lot actually in recruitment, and the irony is you know, people say to me, well, I don't want somebody over 50, and I always go, well, I'm over 50. So I actually challenge them, but that's, it's easy for me to do. But what I advise all candidates is that as you get older in your career and you get more experience, start specialising because people want specialists. And, and if you can find a niche you're good at, whether it be an insurance, you know, reinsurance or something, or an HR person you focus on learning and development, focus on something you can really become a real expert in, take courses in, develop yourself, so that you become one of 10 people in the UAE. Or, so so there's, there's, a, there's a hook to, to, to taking you on. And I think what people do is, often I say to, to, to clients, they give me a specific brief and I send them the two people they want and I send a what I call a wild card. And that wild card is somebody who I think is good. And often they're older, they're probably more experienced. And nine times out of ten they go, oh, that was a really good person. Mm. So you've got to push back, I think, when people say things like that. Because if you let them get away with it, then we're going to be stuck with a bunch of 25-year-olds in the Middle East and we'll go nowhere. 
Sorry to all you 25-year-olds. <laughs> it's okay. None of us in the studio are under no, 25, exactly. so you can have that crack. It's totally fine. No one's challenging that here, David. Thank you both so much for coming in for this chat. It's been really illuminating for us. So, David, Etna, thanks so much for coming in. And we're always around, you know. We'd be here for years. So give us a shout <laughs> yes, again. absolutely. Yeah. Ten years' time, we'll exactly. be back. Exactly. We'll just do this all over again in about Thank 15 years much. from now. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. You are tuned in to The Agenda this morning with Sonal Rapani as I'm standing in for Georgia Tolly over the course of the next week. Now, in 2024, retailers predict a huge demand for locally and ethically sourced goods over the course of next year. It's one of LinkedIn's trends and big ideas to watch. And that's because buyers are becoming increasingly conscientious about the types of brands and the types of companies they support. They want those brands to support their own values, whether that's from a social point of view, environmental point of view, or even political point of view. So we wanted to find out a little bit more about the market sentiment here locally. Amani Erekat is the founder and general manager of SISA Marketing. We asked her if this is a phenomenon that she's been seeing among consumers here. This year, we have seen a notable shift towards conscientious buying within the Middle East. Some of the researches we have conducted at SISA Marketing has revealed that consumers are moving towards uh, products and brands which align with their personal values, especially the brands and products which support local businesses and uh, have sustainable practices. The demand for locally and ethically sourced goods is uh, expected to rise next year, definitely. So the trend we have observed suggests a growing consumer preference for products that contribute positively to their communities and environment. Those brands which can effectively meet this demand with credible sourcing and ethical practices will tap into significant market opportunity. So Zina, according to Amani, this is something that we are seeing here, even in the region, not just sort of on a global scale. Exactly, because there's consumer demand, so brands uh, will answer to that demand. But Amani says it's not an easy exercise for these companies. They really need to ingrain ethical and sustainable practices into their business because consumers are smart. So consumers nowadays are looking for transparency, authenticity, alignment with their ethical standards. Uh, We can see a shift uh, where people started to favor brands that are not only talking about their um, practices and values, but they basically walk the talk and demonstrate through their business practices how do they do all of this, Uh, like using eco-friendly materials, ensuring labor conditions are fair, and also engaging in community welfare. Some brands are certainly going towards the right direction, understanding that genuine commitment to ethical practices is the key to winning customer trust. But uh, we can see there is still a gap between the consumer expectations and the brand actions. So the brands which can bridge this gap will likely see long-term loyalty and success. We're all skeptical about greenwashing at this point. You know, who trusts what a company or what somebody's saying unless you can prove it? Exactly. So you've seen companies going, oh, we've got these green cupcakes, you know, for COP28. (laughs) What does that even have to do with sustainability? Served in plastic containers somehow. Exactly. Yeah, you see so much of that different perspective. I've been speaking to Ritesh Mohan, a retail expert and author. He's also known in the industry as Retail Ritesh. (laughs) And he says it's not that straightforward that buyers spur the demand and retailers fulfill it, especially in the fashion industry. Sustainability does not make a business sense for the brands 
financially. Hence, there is a lot of greenwashing that takes place behind the commercial scene. The concept of sustainability and conscious buying is not new. It has been there for last decade or so. Yet, brands like Sheen is growing at the rate of 80% CAGR, which is cumulative annual growth rate for the last six years or so. It is $100 billion brand, higher than Zara, H&M, Forever 21 combined. Global inflation, which is driving growth for disposable fast fashion, that is tomorrow's trend today, at very pocket-friendly prices. Sustainable products lack volumes due to price factor hence they only appeal to a smaller niche or a segment and hence does not make commercial sense however digitally sustainable brands hold a good prospect brands like Aileen Fisher are designed to appeal to fashionistas on the e-commerce platforms. Business models like Rent the Runway hold good growth prospects including luxury resale business model. So it doesn't make business sense. Yeah, uh, to manufacture, you know, ethically, sustainably sourced goods um, and manufacture them for a large market. And I think there is a difference between saying we should do this to it's practical for us all to do this. That's true. Um, and that's, you know, that's in the fashion industry alone. So if we look into different types of industries, I'm sure there are kind of similarities to the fashion industry. Also sharing her thoughts is Anastasia Golovatenko. She is a PR professional and a business advisor. And she says brands can do better next year because consumer loyalty isn't permanent. As consumers become more cautious about how their products are sourced, there is a significant opportunity for brands to leverage these by highlighting their local roots and sustainable practices. Like individuals, brands are now starting to develop strong personas and positioning, and it's important for consumers to understand what these brands stand for. Consumer preferences can shift easily overnight. One day people might shop from you, and the next day a single command could tarnish your reputation. In 2024, we would recommend that brands and their marketing teams emphasize the brand's values and their vision. So what do Dubai residents have to say about this? Let's hear from Nicola. I always try to shop locally made products whenever it's possible. I've noticed there are lots of locally produced fruits and vegetables nowadays, and I always choose those when I'm in the supermarket. I never liked the idea of flying in everything here for consumption. Let's look at eggs, for instance. I was shocked the first time I saw free-range organic eggs from Denmark on the shelves here. It makes no sense to me in my overall sustainability calculation, and I never bought them. I always buy local eggs. That's something I don't think about as much as supermarket shopping and how much is flown in here, the impact of that. But yeah, it is something that definitely buying local has been on my radar. You just In addition to... The, the kind of environmental consciousness of it, I think there's also an idea of supporting somebody here in the community as opposed to it trickling down essentially to some billionaire somewhere else in the world who's already got more than enough money. That's true. You and know? it's such a simple green hack. You know, it's a no-brainer. You go to the supermarket instead of buying that uh, fair trade, locally sourced item from France, just get the ones that are made in the UAE. There is one. Yeah. Now, to look at it from a more environmental perspective, joining us now virtually is Munir Bouganem. He is policy advisor at the Environment Agency Abu Dhabi. Hi, Munir. Good morning. Hi, good morning. Thank hey. you for hosting me. 
Thank you so much for joining us on this topic. I mean, you, just to introduce you to our listeners, for those that aren't aware, you were instrumental in implementing the plastic bag ban that took place in Abu Dhabi last year, which as of June this year, reduced the number of single-use plastic bags in circulation by 172 million. That's a mind-boggling number. So first of all, thank you. Thank you for that. And uh, thank you. How, thank do you, you. how do you respond when you hear that? Do we have, first of all, any update on that number? Yeah, I think it's a, it's an average of uh, 450, half a million, a bit less than half a million bag uh, per day is uh, avoided in Abu Dhabi due to the ban and due to uh, the uh, fee on uh, reusable bags. So the, it's a combination of things. It's not the ban only. So the ban, uh, the, the alternative is another could be plastic, could be non-plastic, but reusable alternative, and there is a fee for it, which led to the uh, to the decline of up to 95% in the number of plastic bags distributed at the cash counters. And this this is real data from from retailers. That is an incredibly impressive number and also just tells you how much we do consume on a daily basis. When you talk about what was behind this, the thinking behind it, obviously it came from a government mandate, but was it driven by consumer demand for people asking for this? Was it more of the government saying this is a policy we should have? I mean, what was some of the um, the events and conversations leading up to this ban? You know, single-use plastic and single-use packaging in in general is is a hot topic worldwide in the environmental uh, community of practice. Let's put it this way: the impact on marine life, the impact on the food supply chain for humans. We consume a, a, a an average of a credit card size of plastic a week as a humans, according to uh, latest studies, which is which is a lot, and uh, the impact on the environment in general. So. Uh, we had that concern, and then we had the, uh, some planning. We did some public consultations on it. We did some testing with some of the retailers. Uh, the, the majority of the consumers uh, they preferred a sustainable, a more sustainable alternative. Of course, there is a there is an issue of um, uh, uh, convenience. However, they were very uh, quick in responding to the changing, uh, let's say, regulatory system uh, towards more sustainable alternatives in, in their shopping. How much power do you feel consumers have when it comes to their environmental consciousness? Packaging is one other example, aside from plastic bags, you know, especially with deliveries that continue to be a major concern. I mean, I'll tell you a little story that I experienced. I ordered a single eyeliner. Now, you can imagine it's the size of a pencil. It was in a standard packaging box for the brand. Inside another bigger box, inside a massive box. I mean, the box that came to me for a single eyeliner was about two feet big. Um, I felt so upset by this, but as a consumer, I thought, what can I do to change this situation? For consumers that feel increasingly frustrated by unnecessary packaging, for example, or other wasteful practices that we see, how can we make our views on this felt? Make it more uh, expensive for the uh, companies or the supply chain to provide you with this. Uh, I think at, in many of the online delivery services, now you have some options to avoid uh, some of the packaging, not all of the packaging. Uh, uh, we have we still have a long way to go in, in uh, dealing with the packaging uh, of, of stuff. However, 
many of these online delivery services now they have the option to avoid some of these so uh, and this is mainly driven by requests from the from from consumers retailers now are all looking for alternatives sustainable alternatives for those products that were identified by the law that will be banned and for those products that were identified as uh, the majority of the litter in the uh, environment. Mm. And I, I, I could say that 2024 is a very promising year for uh, changing uh, these practices with the national ban on single-use plastic bags coming effective maybe in 10 days uh, at the beginning of uh, 2024 at the national level. I, I speak on behalf of Abu Dhabi, but of course there is a national ban coming up, uh, to uh, to be effective uh, next year. So I, I think that it's 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 parallel tracks for consumers, for retailers, and for governments to work closely together to uh, to have a substantial change in the way we do business. You know, given the success of the plastic bag ban that we've seen, are we expecting to see more government-driven mandates on this that will make it a requirement for industry and for companies to have more environmentally sustainable policies? Of course. I mean, this is, uh, we are just at the bottom of the ladder. Uh, the issue of circularity in the system, circularity uh, to 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 make it easier for everyone well the listeners i mean circularity is to ensure that the 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 material does not go to the landfill it, it circulates and and this applies not only to uh, waste and packaging it applies to air quality water all of these elements the issue of circularity is coming uh, aggressively to the to to the business and the community in the future. COP28 was a major milestone for us. It highlighted the uh, the need to start doing business differently. And I think everyone, everyone, the community, the, the private sector, mainly the private sector, and the government are all convinced that we should do things differently. We should reduce consumption of material. We should divert material from going to landfills. We should make sure to recover as much. In Abu Dhabi, we want to recover 50% of uh, water bottles. And this is a lot. This is what I'm talking about, something between five to 8,000 tons a year of, of bottles, which is, which is a huge amount. So we want this material not to be uh, discarded in landfills. We want this material to re re-injected back into the system and reduce the associated impact, the associated emissions, the associated cost, all of that. 50% of water bottles recovery is, is really ambitious and it's good to hear. How? What are some of the strategies or approaches potentially that you're looking at for this? So far, we've launched in July uh, 2022, uh, sorry, 2023. We are, we are close to 2024 now. Uh, this year, we launched the, uh, an incentive-based bottle return scheme in Abu Dhabi. So if you are in Abu Dhabi, uh, you could see in many of the retail outlets, you have RVMs, return vending machines. And if you are in residential areas, there are applications so that you can recover, of, uh, you, you can return many of the PET and aluminum cans uh, that you produce uh, at home or in your commercial establishment. And our target is to grow 
uh, into that capacity to to uh, to reach fifty uh, percent. Uh, we have to bear in mind that we don't have a a deposit scheme, so we don't pay for each bottle a certain amount of money to be returned uh, when when we get it to the machine. It is the other way around. It's an incentive based. Mm. Munir, thank you so much for joining us and talking us through some of those policies and and also the response to a lot of those as well. Thank you very much. Thank you for hosting me. The voice there of Munir Bouganem, he is policy advisor at Environmental Agency Abu Dhabi. It's really nice to hear that a lot of these voluntary programs doing well, um, in, in addition to the ones that are driven by a government mandate. You are tuned into the agenda where we're talking all sorts of trends for 2024. One of those trends is that salaries in the UAE are expected to increase by 4.5% next year. That's according to a recent Cooper Fitch salary guide. And the report says 53% of firms are expected to increase employee salaries, with 39% saying the raise will be up to 5%. Now, the Business Breakfast actually caught up with Trevor Murphy, founder and CEO of Cooper Fitch, ahead of the report's release. And Brandy asked him, about the surprising statistic that more than 20% of firms expect to lower salaries next year. Yes, this is this is terribly unusual. But look, I, I think in a, in, in a general market position, you've probably got in an overall employment market of a, of a, of a city like Dubai or, or an emirate like the UAE, you would have lots of organisations that are struggling uh, because of their market position, because their product or service is not competing well in market. Um, but it's a it's a it's a worrying outlook that there are organizations that want to actually reduce salaries next year. Now, as we head towards the heavy spending of the Christmas season, towards end of year reviews at work, when people perhaps are best placed to push for those salary increases, towards the start of the new year as well, when people may be setting financial goals, we decided we need to just talk about money today. Oh, yeah. And we brought in Carol Glynn. She is founder of Conscious Finance Coaching. In She's in the studio with us for a little chat. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for coming in, Carol. And I wanted to start on that topic of salaries, because how much of a role does an employee play in successfully advocating for their own salary raise versus it's just a company process or an annual review based on performance? And there's kind of companies that have a culture of doing that and raising salaries every year. And there are mm. certain companies where, you know, no matter how many times you ask for it, mm. you're never getting that salary increase. How much is it de- dependent on the individual versus on the company culture, typically, from what you see? I think... Largely, we rely on the company culture and we, and we allow ourselves to sit in that space and say, well, the company won't give it. And there are absolutely companies who are steadfast in there. These are the rules and we do not deviate. But actually, when you scratch the surface, they always deviate in certain circumstances. They always do. There's always exceptions to the rules. So I think that while we have to manage within the culture that we are in, in whatever company you're working for, there's always ways around that. So you have to advocate for yourself and take responsibility for that as well. Right. So it's a two way street, really, and not just accepting what you're told. In terms of not accepting what you're told, I will admit I have a personal admission here. Well, Zena, actually, I'm going to put you on the spot first. Have you ever oh, successfully gosh. asked for a raise or a salary increase? I don't think so. I have been given a raise in the past, but mm. uh, it's not something that I asked for. Uh, by the way, I think 4.5% is super low. If we ever get a salary increase, right. I think we should get more. I'm a freelancer. Because it happens so rarely, I suppose. Yeah, it doesn't apply to me because I'm a freelancer. But for full-timers, you know, given inflation rates and everything, I think minimum... 
10% would Ooh. be a good one. But anyway, I have never successfully asked for a raise. It's just, it's not my style. I have never successfully asked for a salary increase either. So we've got two women in the studio <laughs> admitting that. I've gotten raises at previous companies just because it was part of their process. Mm. It was automatic, as we've talked about before. So when you are offered a salary increase automatically, do you just say, oh, thank you? Or do you actually ask for more when it's already part of the process? From my experience, the vast majority of people just say thank you. Yeah. Um, because they expect that. But I think it's about looking at, is it fair? So sometimes thank you is appropriate because it absolutely is fair and it's in line with your expectations and what others are also getting, the market, whatever that might be. But sometimes there is reason to push back and it's absolutely acceptable to push back and I do think it's interesting you know you said two women in, in, in the room who haven't but research has shown that women are much less likely to ask for a salary increase and much more likely to just accept and be grateful and move on whereas you know all of the HR research will show that men will ask for more um, in a much more deliberate way than women do so I think you know in corporates Companies need to have an environment where people can ask and not feel punished for that. They can always say no. Yeah. You know, it needs to be that open conversation to be a two-way thing again to go, yes, because, no, because, but just a flat no, it's not a very positive environment, I think. And it's interesting that the gender dynamics have come up because that mm. is something that people are so much more aware of now than they were before. Now, with that constant awareness of women understanding some of the ways that they're socialized to ask for less or not to ask at all, mm. is that changing, especially with, I guess, younger women? It absolutely is changing. Thankfully, it's great. Women are becoming a lot more confident in asking for more, asking for their worth, asking for more than just they feel they need. Um, which in the past, it was just, I'll accept what I'm given and I don't want to rock the boat. But definitely, thankfully, there is much more activity there from women asking for, for more and asking for what they feel they deserve, which is, which is right, in my belief. And I have a, a, something I've always wondered about. Should you know what your colleagues in the same role as you are making? Is it is it a good idea or should people be talking about this a bit more? Should we normalize that? Or is that something that's just going to cause problems? You know, it's a really, really sensitive one. Um, I think that it has to be handled very sensitively. You know, there is a lot of talk around everyone should share each other's salaries. I think it's quite dangerous. It can, you know, without the appropriate kind of support system around that, at least initially, especially if there is a big gap between people's salaries, doing the same job that's going to cause a lot of issues mm. so I'm a little bit towards we don't necessarily need to share what everyone is earning but we do need confidence that everyone is being paired, paid fairly so it's about HR having policies that when they're deciding who is getting paid what it's done on a fair basis therefore we don't need to share it because our, our income is a very personal thing mm. it's a very vulnerable space for people and I think we have a long way to go for people to feel safe whether you are the one earning more or earning less to feel safe to expose that piece of ourselves um, so I think that we have a bit to go before we can do that so my maybe controversial opinion is right now no I don't think that we should be sharing but I think that the responsibility is on companies to pay fairly right when it comes to fairness and when people feel perhaps they're not sure if they mm. are actually getting paid a fair amount for the work that they're doing yeah usually what we do is we benchmark we think what are other people of the same role making that's just typically how you think about if the amount you're making is fair or not it's not sort of an arbitrary how are you supposed to know that if people aren't sharing though 
That's where it's, and it's difficult in this region because in some places there are studies out there. There is market research. There mm. is every year. Um, I went through this in my previous life in corporate where we benchmarked all of our employees to see are we paying them fairly? What are, how, where do we sit compared to the market? And it was difficult to get that information. And it was really inconsistent, you know, and then trying to manage job titles. How do you know what this person is actually doing is the same as what this person is doing in a completely different industry, in a completely different business? It is difficult. I absolutely acknowledge that. So it is something that I think companies, maybe in the long term, we look at disclosing what people are in a confidential space, you don't need to name the person, but being able to share among each other what they're paying and creating that database of information that companies can benchmark against. But we're not there yet. And if you are in a position currently, if somebody out there in their car is listening and they want to advocate for a bump in their salary, give us some mm. advice. Walk us through the process. How mm. should you stage it in sort of different kind of approaches? What's the mm. best time of year to approach this? Mm. Should it come in your end of year review? Should it actually start way before when nobody else is raising it just yet? How do you advise people go about it? I think it should be a regular communication. So, you know, in an ideal world, you're having regular performance reviews or conversations with your with your manager. Um, and you're talking about how you feel about your salary, where that is, where you benchmark within, within the company. Having that safe space to express, well, I feel that I would like to be paid more or I should be paid more because. And I think it really just helps that to be prepared to look at like what did you do in your role? Where did you outperform? Where did you maybe over deliver? Where did you step in beyond your job spec that is expected of you? Have the market research that you have available to you. This is what others are getting paid in, in this industry at this role. Have the facts. I think keep it, the emotion out of it helps. Mm -hmm. Having facts, this is what I've done in my, and this is where I feel that I am deserving of, and it's fair to have this salary increase. And be open to hearing both sides. And then, and like again, it's the, your manager has to be able to listen to that and be able to look at that person and say yes or no in good faith. So I think being prepared and not just, and, and when, not just springing it on your manager or coming out of nowhere with it. Have that conversation throughout. Where are we sitting with a salary increase for me? What do I need to do to get that? Is it a promotion? Is there within my band scope for this? How can I, um, you know, work towards getting this salary increase? Coming toward like that, what can I do? So it's a two-way mm -hmm. thing, not just I want and I deserve. It's also where can I step up? Where can I contribute more to earn this? Right. And I think that's much better received than just walking into a room and go, I want more money. Yeah, to me. it doesn't come across entitled. It comes like I'm willing yes. to work for this. Yes, yeah. I think that helps. And keeping it that way, like it's a two way street, it's contribution and and it's a very emotional topic. It yeah. is. But working towards managing those emotions because you don't want to come across entitled. We've had some messages that have come in. This one more of just a statement than a question for you. But Amar has said, you reminded me of my previous boss in a company. Whenever I asked him for a salary increase, he said, you know, rents are being increased. We're paying for training more. We're paying more for electricity. So, you know, we can't increase your salary more than 100 dirhams on the whole salary. Mm. Basically just blaming other expenses. Yeah. Um, and then a really interesting question that's come in. No name on this one to just say, how or where can I find out the average salary of my role within the same industry. And just a moment ago off air, we were talking about how difficult yeah. this can actually be for an individual to find out. But what's your advice on this front? It is really difficult. I mean, we can go to Google, but we'll find most of that information is not related to this region, assuming this person is in the UAE. Um, it's very difficult to get that here because it's so diverse here as well. 
So really the only tangible information that we can have is apply for other jobs. Look in the market with your within your industry or even outside your industry at what you're looking for, what job you're looking for and see what they are offering. Go for the interviews. It's good practice. And if they offer you a role, then you have options. And also in your salary negotiations, it can help to be able to say, you know, it's not just me asking for this number. Here is hard evidence of what I am worth to someone else. Right. But you just need to be careful with that because that is playing with fire a little bit. You need to be ready to leave if that you're going to use that in in a salary negotiation that what if your company says, okay, fine, but we don't have that here. Um, Are you willing to stay? But it will give you that true life evidence of I can get this money in another company in my industry. It's the best way to find it because at the minute, I haven't seen any data that is widely available in this region. Yeah, and it is risky to leverage a new job offer, especially if you're not that keen on leaving your current job. But as as we were saying, if they're not working hard to keep you, maybe it tells you what you need to know anyways. It does. And, you know, maybe a new opportunity. It's the time. If you're not getting paid what you feel you're worth where you are, maybe it is worth having a look outside and actually taking that chance on someone who is willing to pay you what you're worth. Yeah. Negotiating when you accept a role, obviously, Mm. is an interesting um, kind of challenge for many people. I heard a story of someone hiring and he said, you know, I'd offered somebody a job. She was very qualified. She said she was excited for the role. She kind of expressed a great excitement in the role. And without saying directly that she accepted the offer, kind of insinuated as much. But then after all that, asked if there was any room for negotiation on the salary. But because already she had stated her interest in taking the job, he said, no, there wasn't, even though there actually was wiggle room for for her to negotiate. Yeah. So how do people, I mean, I'm sure it's so easy to get this wrong, isn't it? What's the best way when you're getting a new job? Because that's when you're really setting the benchmark. It's hard to get that increase once you're in. Yeah. So when you're actually getting a new position, how do you go for that high, the highest salary basically you're able to achieve? You're, you're so right. It is best to start at the higher because it's easier than getting the increase afterwards. Um, and, and it's another area where I have seen that women tend to show their cards. You know, I really want this job. I'm really appreciative um, and kind of give that indication that, yes, I'm going to accept it. And then, but is there any wiggle room? So there's no motivation for that person to give you more because, you know, from being in corporate and being a CFO and working with HR, I know how these things work. They will also be largely told to control costs. So you get someone at a fair amount and they have a goal um, and then it becomes a battle. Who's willing? It's almost like a game of chicken, right? Who's going to give in first? So you don't want to show your cards too early. Show interest, be polite, but say, I, I had this experience myself in the past where I said, thank you very much, but no, it's not for me. And be willing to walk away. And then it forces their hand to say, okay, right, we, we can char- we can give you more. And they will if they really, really want you. But you have to be able to walk away, I think. Um, and don't show your over-eagerness too soon because then they've no reason to give you more. They know you're going to take it anyway. And, you know, Carol, we've been, oh, sorry, Zena also wanted to chime in. I thought of something. So another thing that women tend to do when negotiating a salary increase or trying to get a job and negotiating, um, you know, what is, what they view as fair pay is they, um, they outline their responsibilities. You know, I'm a Mm -hmm. mom and I have to pay the school fees and then I'm also responsible for rent. So I really hope you can give me something that I can work with and I don't see men doing that. Is that something we should just totally stop doing? Yes, we should absolutely stop doing that. And 
because it, it, it again it comes back to that emotional side of it and it's like I need I need and people don't respond well to that it's I know I'm worth this the job that I'm going to do is worth this and therefore I'm asking for what's fair rather than that sense of like obligation and because what happens there is people will become wary of that because like if you're coming with that energy of I need this then they're afraid well what's going to happen next you know what, what when is the next time they're going to ask for a salary increase it's not as well respected unfortunately and while it might be our reality I mean we all work because we need money right it's, it's, it's a simple fact but we do need to change yes that language around it and come with that energy of this is what the job is worth this is what I know I am worth and what I'm going to contribute to it and this is what I'm willing to work for which is what men come with and HR managers tell me that all the time hmm. men will always ask for I spoke to someone recently and he said his frustration is when he's hiring women they never ask in his experience they never ask for they just take the offer Men will always ask for what's next. Yeah. I want more. Right. I want more. That's not high enough. Always. And sometimes he said he's even gone back to the person on the side and said, ask for more. Ask yeah. for more. You can ask for more because women don't do it. Whoa. Yeah, because, you know, sometimes mm. I think because you see that so much, you just want to help people yes. out. You want to help people there understand the There are good the people system. there yeah. who want to help. So they know and, and there's an assumption of a negotiation. I'm going to offer this knowing that the person will probably ask for more and then we will reach to that. That's always the case. Whereas if women just accept their first offer, you know, you, you, you've left money on the table. You've yeah. left money on the table. Lance. Mm. You know, we talked a lot about salaries. I want to talk a little bit about uh, planning as well, mm. because the UAE is a place that has a little bit of a reputation for expats. They come here thinking they're going to save because they've got these nice tax free salaries and then they actually end up spending way more than expected on their lifestyle. Mm. Why do you think we see so much of this here? I think there is a lack of understanding of the cost of living here. You know, I think people don't see past it's tax free mm -hmm. and the salaries are higher than they might be in other locations, but also cost of living is. And I think if you come here and are not conscious of mm. what you are doing, you can very easily get sucked into the amazing lifestyle that's on offer here. You know, we can do whatever we want, but it all costs money. Um, right. And also, I think that what people underestimate when they move here is the social network that you are trying to build costs money. So eating out, socialising, we want to build the friendships and um, we want to build a community. Everything we do costs money. Yeah. You know, it's very, very little we can do that actually is free. And even if you're going to the beach, you end up eating there. You have to pay for what you wear, you, you know, whatever you're, you're taking with you. And then getting, setting up, getting set up here, it's quite expensive. Because I know, like, I'm Irish. If I rent a house in Ireland, it's fully furnished. There is basics that the landlord is required down to even a microwave right. must be in the house. Huh. Whereas here, you don't even have curtains. There's nothing inside the house. Wouldn't and like, people nice? underestimate that. I know. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of setup fees that people are not necessarily aware of when they get here. Right. And then you need to be just conscious of the lifestyle creep that can catch people when they come here. Um, you know, it's fun the first year. It's a new experience. We want to do everything. We want to meet new people, which is great. But it absorbs a lot of our income very quickly. It's really hard to downgrade once you've had a taste. Yes, it <laughs> really. really is. 
you know. And when it comes to people setting their financial goals, and mm. oftentimes, you know, New Year, this is a time when people reflect on some of these things. Mm. Should you have a specific goal in mind about, let's say, how much you want to increase your net worth over that year or the next sort of three years? Or is it more about just setting up a process, your regular amount going into an investment portfolio being saved and just trust in the results over time? I mean, what's some of the, what's the best approach that you take perhaps, mm. at, you know, if you are starting to set out some financial goals? It's actually both. So you need to set targets. You need to look at, right, this is my income. Analyze what your, your cost of living is. Really understand that. Most people won't know. Mm. They, they, they can't. They can say, mm, this, this, this and this. But I never, I should have X amount at the end of the month, but I never do. It just seems to fall through my fingers. Because, you know, we spend all day, every day, constantly. Some of it we're not even thinking about. So we can't remember all of it. So just do the analysis. And set a target of what percentage you want to save every month. But give it a purpose. Because just setting a target means nothing. It's not motivating. It has to have a purpose, which then feeds into, you know, the second thing is automating it. So if it's I want to save 20% of my salary and put it into a savings account, I've worked with so many people and I experienced this myself. It doesn't mean anything. It's just money in the bank. And we're more likely to spend that and dip into it when something interesting comes up unless it's for my retirement, to go home and buy a house, to pay for my kids' school fees, to, 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 whatever it is. And that financial goal needs to be something that's important to you mm-hmm. in line with your value system. I talk a lot about aligning your money with your value system and then it becomes so much easier to do because suddenly it's important to you. It's not because I should. You know, people come to me and say, can you help me with setting up an investment portfolio? Yes, but why? Because I should. Okay, yes, we should. Of course we should. We want to make money work for us, but Why? What are you going to do with the money? What's its purpose? Because otherwise it's some obscure thing that's taking money away from you. So having that purpose is a game changer. And then automating it. Absolutely. By putting aside whatever amount that is, it goes into an account that you don't even see and let it do its thing in the background, whether that's earning interest or in an investment portfolio that's growing over time. Um, Automate it so that you can carry on with your life and enjoy the money that you've designated to spending every month because you've taken care of your future self, as I call it. Right. And there are a couple of trends I want to touch on as well, because freelancing, people working Mm. independently in the sort of gig economy, we're seeing a huge trend in people who don't want to necessarily be employed by a company directly. They want to manage their own workflow. But then what does that Mm. mean for their finances? It comes with a whole unique set of challenges uh, in terms of not having benefits that we take for granted how much those actually cost. For people who are setting off on their own, what's your advice to them about what they should be thinking about financially? You really need to plan. You really need to plan. So I did this, went from a very secure, safe, corporate, high paid job into entrepreneurship. um, And it is a very different dynamic. Financial security is so inherent to us, whether we like to admit it or not. You know, money is important and that's not a bad thing. It's actually crucial because we need it for everything that we do. So we cannot underestimate the shift from my salary arrives every month to, oh, I got paid this month. I didn't get paid this month. I got more. I got less. What am I going to get next month? Is the pipeline there? So before you make that move, I would say plan. Plan as much as you possibly can. Understand your financial situation. Really understand where you are maybe spending in areas that you can reduce if you need to. Because most freelancers, it takes time to grow Mm. your business. You have peaks, you have lows. And I would say always have an amount of money set aside for those low points an amount of money that you're willing to spend because there will be months, I'm sure. I mean, very few freelancers tell me that they're making huge amounts of money from the beginning. Um, And there's always months that are slower, especially if if your time is money and you go on holidays and you're not earning because you're on holidays. So you need to set money aside to cover that. 
because otherwise you're going to burn out very quickly because you feel I need to work constantly to earn money because I can't take a break. So if you have savings, designate an amount of money that is like your emergency fund for your business. So you can pay yourself a salary in those slower times because otherwise it's very stressful. I mean, money is the number one cause of stress worldwide. And it's one thing when you have a salary and you know what's coming every month. It's a different ballgame when suddenly you're dependent on whatever happens that month and how much you can generate yourself. So plan, really look at your numbers before you make that leap, because then you can walk into it as well, feeling more secure, right? less uncertain. Carol, thank you so much for all of that advice. How can people find you if they want to get in touch? So I'm uh, most active on Instagram at, at consciousfinancecoaching.com, but you can reach out to me at carol at consciousfinancecoaching.com. I offer free introductory chats for anyone who you know is interested in working with me. I offer all sorts of digital courses, one-on-one group, workshops, um, anything that I can help with your personal finances, I'm here for. Brilliant. I'm going to definitely come see you very, very soon. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. From money, we are moving on now to health. We're covering so many different topics on the agenda this morning. You were tuned into Sonal Rupani, and we're talking about Parkinson's disease. Now, according to the World Health Organization, the prevalence of Parkinson's disease has doubled in the past 25 years. That's with global estimates showing over 8.5 million individuals with the condition in 2019. Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi has a unique treatment for Parkinson's patients right here in the Middle East, and it's called deep brain stimulation. It's a procedure that involves implanting electrodes into specific areas of the brain, which then deliver electrical impulses to basically modify brain activity and abnormal brain activity that's responsible for some of the disease's symptoms. Now, to help us make sense of all of that is Dr. Shivam Om Mittal. He is physician in the Neurological Institute at Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi. And Dr. Shivam, thanks for joining us on the agenda today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And before we get started about this, this specific innovation, tell us a little bit about Parkinson's. How is it usually diagnosed and what are some of the early signs for this? Thank you for bringing this up. So Parkinson's disease is a neurological condition, is one of the fastest growing neurological condition globally. And uh, the diagnosis is made mostly clinical. The initial symptoms, the hallmark symptoms that helps the clinician to diagnose Parkinson's is a slowness in the body movements, shaking or what we call as tremor, and a muscle stiffness or we medical term we use as rigidity. So when we see slowness in the body movements, stiffness in the muscles and shaking or the tremor, that's one of the hallmark symptoms of uh, Parkinson's disease. Again, the patient or the person needs to be thoroughly examined and evaluated by a neurologist who is trained in Parkinson's or a movement disorder neurologist who can thoroughly review the history and examine the person, make sure there's no other reason causing the symptoms. And this is uh, what we call as Parkinson's disease. And sometimes we may have to do some extra testing like MRI brain or other investigations, but mostly the diagnosis is a clinical diagnosis. And why are we seeing those numbers go up so dramatically? Is it just that there's more awareness and more diagnoses that are happening now? Are there other factors that we know of? So I agree. This is quite alarming because as a Uh, We know from the statistics from the Global Disease Burden Study, the numbers are doubling for Parkinson's disease. And uh, this is concerning for neurologists and uh, epidemiologists globally. 
Uh, at this point, one of the major factors is definitely we have better healthcare services, so the diagnosis is better. And also, people are living longer because of better con con better control of risk factors for stroke and heart conditions. So people are living longer, and we know that Parkinson's do this number does increase in elderly population. But again, there are many other factors that we at this point don't know completely. Uh, there are risk factors like the combination. We know the Parkinson's, it is the exact cause we don't know, but it's a combination of genetic and the environmental factors, which is believed to contribute in the symptoms. Maybe it's exposure to pesticides or head injuries may increase the risk as per the studies. But we're still trying to understand what is the one or what is the what are overall risk factors that are increasing the numbers worldwide. And traditionally, what has been the treatment for Parkinson's? So Parkinson's disease treatment is highly individualized. I, uh, you know, at Cleveland, we see many patients of Parkinson's and um, not every patient is similar. Everyone is different from one another. You know, Parkinson's is not only the symptoms of the tremor or muscle tightness or slowness. Patients can also experience a lot of other symptoms like mood disturbance, anxiety, sleep disturbance, constipation, lack of smell sensation, um, pain symptoms. So they can have variety of other symptoms as well. So targeting the therapy and the treatment based on the patient needs is the key. And that's where the role of a multidisciplinary team approach comes into picture. Like if a person is having falls or having some issues with walking, we have to have an early intervention by a physical therapist who's trained in Parkinson's. Or if someone has speech or the voice is softer, then they need to be seen by a speech therapist who is trained in something what we call as LSVT or Lee Silverman voice therapy, which is specifically designed for Parkinson's patients. Mm -hmm. But again, it has to be individualized, but the treatment uh, is mostly medications. There are medications like I usually give an example to my patients and um, they will, if someone is hearing me, they will correlate that what I tell them in the clinic, that in Parkinson's, we have to give back the brain, the, in, the, the fuel that is causing the symptoms of Parkinson's. So we give the medication, which is the dopamine medications, the levodopa, and we have to titrate the medications based on the patient's symptoms to control the symptoms much better mm -hmm. so they can have a good quality of life. So that's mostly the traditional treatment. Well, tell us about the deep brain stimulation in very simple terms, if you could. How are electrical sure. pulses in the brain mm -hmm. impacting the condition? Mm -hmm. So deep brain stimulation is a, is a sophisticated procedure. It is, uh, there's an area in the brain which is uh, called subthalamic nucleus, is a fancy name. But this small area, it's a pea-sized area in the brain, and that, can, that modulates the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. So think of it as a finely tuned orchestra. These electrodes deliver controlled electrical impulses like the conductor, guiding each instrument to restore harmony in the brain. So uh, with the stimulator, the, uh, the, the tip of that stimulator is in that area which modulates the electrical impulses. And with stimulation, you can mimic the response that the person gets with the medications. So overall, with the deep brain stimulation, we're reducing their need of the medication. So many patients, we have to re we can reduce the dose of medication significantly, and uh, um, we can control the symptoms, mostly the tremor symptoms, the stiffness and the slowness, very well with deep brain stimulation. Yeah, and how do the results compare from the traditional medications to this particular procedure? How invasive mm -hmm. is the procedure and how do the results compare to traditional 
dopamine med- right. medication? So deep brain stimulation is an advanced treatment option. So not every Parkinson's person needs DBS surgery. So DBS, the selection of the patient, the right patient selection is the key for the success of the DBS surgery. If I start doing DBS for every patient, it will not be effective. It will not be fruitful because the medication works excellent. The medication works very well. But in some patients who have advanced Parkinson's, where symptoms are not very well controlled with Parkinson's or they have shaking in the hand or the tremor, which is not responding to the medications, in that situation, we opt for deep brain simulation surgery. So it's only a subset of patients who get this unique treatment. And when we are looking at the success rate, uh, we're looking at specific symptoms. So if a person who is holding, uh, having difficulty holding a cup in his hand unable to hold a spoon to eat food. And if we switch on the deep brain stimulation device and we can see the tremor, the shaking is under 100% control when he can hold the spoon or hold the plate, then we know it is working 100%. Mm. But it is for specific symptoms. So DBS might not work for what we call as a freezing when they're walking and suddenly have their legs are frozen, they're suddenly stuck and cannot walk. So DBS might not be that effective for that symptom. So we have to really individualize the treatment based on the patient needs uh, and for people who have a right patient selection like a right they need they need the dbs surgery the results are fantastic oh well it's great that you're seeing wonderful results with this particular treatment and it's available right here in the uae dr shivam thank you so much for telling us a little bit more about it you're welcome you're welcome that's the voice there of dr shivam om metal he's physician in the neurological institute at cleveland clinic in abu dhabi You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. You are tuned into The Agenda with Sonal and with Zena today. Georgia Tolley is going to be back in the new year. She's covering for Business Breakfast over the course of this week. And she's going to be on her holidays next week. So a couple of the stories we've been discussing on the show today relate to LinkedIn's big ideas, some insights into the likely trends of 2024. One of those that we've been focused on is conscientious buying. Now, an article posted on the professional network platform says people in the Middle East have become more mindful with consumers increasingly opting to shop from local businesses that resonate with their interests, values, and beliefs. Does this resonate with you? Let us know on 4001 if you found yourself making some switches to the way that you act as a consumer, because retail experts say this is going to be a growing trend next year, driven by growing concerns for sustainability and also regional political dynamics. As a result, retailers say there's going to be a huge demand for ethically sourced goods next year. Now, Amani Erekat is the founder and general manager of CISA Marketing. She says it's a phenomenon that is creeping into consumer behavior. Consumers are moving towards uh, products and brands which align with their personal values, especially the brands and products which support local businesses and uh, have sustainable practices. The demand for locally and ethically sourced goods is uh, expected to rise next year, definitely. So the trend we have observed suggests a growing consumer preference for products that contribute positively to their communities and environment. Those brands which can effectively meet this demand with credible sourcing and ethical practices will tap into significant market opportunity. 
And now we wanted to catch up about how we can train our children to be more conscientious buyers, to look into a brand's ethos, not to fall for greenwashing. And we thought, let's speak to the Green Teacher of the Year that was announced at the recently held ARN Green Awards at COP28. Maureen Mason is a grade five primary years program teacher at GEMS American Academy in Abu Dhabi. Maureen, thanks for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. And let me just start by saying congratulations on this award. It's a tremendous recognition. Yeah, it was pretty cool. I was very excited about it. Um, I do need to say, though, that this is not an individual award. Um, I have a grade five teaching team, and they are really incredible. And they work really hard with the students to embed the sustainable development goals across the curriculum. And I think... um, they're doing a really, really good job. The conversations that we have with the kids are really authentic. It's nice to be recognized for this. Tell us a little bit about how you do that. How do you embed sustainable goals within the overall curriculum and, and really teach methods that, that matter and make an impact? I think, first of all, you need to um, help the students develop their reason why. Why is it important to them? Because we each have our own perspective and our own reasons why something is important. So we unpack the goals with the students and, you know, really look at what each one of them is and try and get them to make a personal as a reason why it would be important to them. One of the activities that I really like doing with the kids is getting them to go home and have a look at the food products that they've got in their cupboard Mm. and, and doing, um, you know, pulling all the products out and writing down where are the countries that they have come from, what is what is locally produced and what is not. Have a look at their food diary across a week. How many meals do they actually eat that are actually fresh, sustainable products from the UAE? And then just making one small change. You know, we don't need to be doing really huge things, but if we can change one meal a week, we're going to make a big difference. And why is it a priority for you as a teacher to to sort of show them the way about how to be quite critical in their thinking around um, environmental policies and their own behaviors? Yeah, that's that's the key word is to be a really critical thinker. Um, we teach with an inquiring method, which is about them asking the questions and inquiring deeper into why. And it's about having a sustainable future. Like, what is their future going to look like? The kids I teach are 10 or 11, and they have the opportunity to make some real changes so that when they have children, things are going to be different. Things will be repairing. Right now, we are looking down you know, the tunnel of animals disappearing and all sorts of just negative doom and gloom. We don't want our kids to suffer from doom and gloom. We want to empower them so that they know that they can make a change. And what do you hear from them in terms of the awareness that your students have in terms of environmental challenges that they see around them? How do they, how do they want to make a difference? Most of them are excited to make a difference. Um, We are still living in an era where they are used to getting everything immediately. So to try and change that and to get them to slow down and to really research, well, where does that product come from? Is there a better product that I can get? 
What is the consequence of my action? And this is what we want. We want a call to action for our students. And then when they come back to school and say, hey, I found this and I can do this a better way, and they get excited and they share that with somebody else, and, you know, then someone else can make a change as well. Maureen, thank you so much for joining us today. And kudos on integrating that into your curriculum as well. Congratulations once again on that award. Thank you. That's the voice there of Maureen Mason. She's a grade five primary years program teacher at GEMS American Academy in Abu Dhabi. And she was recently awarded Green Teacher of the Year at the ARN Green Awards at COP28. Tune into the agenda every weekday from 10 a.m.